as someone who is essentially self-taught, I feel like anybody can teach themselves as long as they know what to pay attention to and they're not intimidated. <laughs> so a lot of my teaching is about helping people get past the idea that, oh, I could never do that. And I'm just saying, oh, break it down, break it down. You can yeah. always make it a smaller increment and work with that and build on that and build on that. So the, the process uh, that I use and teach is more about um, patience and strategy than it is about brute strength and um, some kind of rare or world-class talent to work with large amounts of clay. Today, I'm talking to Stephen Proctor, who is a clay artist. Good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Oh, it's so lovely to meet you here on Zoom. Nice to meet you. It's it's beautiful to see you in your studio. And um, now I see the, the pots like that. I always look at them on Instagram and admire your work. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm lucky to have um, a good representation on Instagram. And oh, that's where a lot of people discover me. <clears throat> now, I think it's so amazing on Instagram now that uh, people are able to showcase their work like that you know because you talk about your work as well and your approach to your work and um and that i find so wonderful well thank you yeah i like to what i'm doing is so unusual i like to give a little people a little sense of what's involved and how i think about it yeah so i I've uh, this is now for me interesting. I thought about this the other day um, when we when when I asked you to do the interview. I've spoken to somebody who makes the smallest, tiniest glass work, um, really, you know, little insects that he makes. And now I'm talking to somebody who's making things on on a big scale, <laughs> you know, like a huge pot. Have you have you um, progressed to that? size? Did you start off making smaller things? Well, I knew from the outset that I wanted to make large pieces because I've always experienced a large ceramic vessel as having a presence that feels animate to me in a way. Um, they feel like beings of sorts. And I find that so mysterious. Um, and so when I stumbled into clay, I was roughly 40. Um, through one of my kids, actually, who was taking a class. And um, I knew from the outset I wanted to do, to go large. Throwing on the wheel did not come easily to me, um, but I persisted. I, as my wife likes to say, I had a high tolerance for failure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was mostly finding my own way. Of course, I was visiting studios when I could, but um, I was just piecing together bits of information, finding my way toward a material that was really suited for it. And, you know, it took me several years of experimentation and periodically renting studio space and um, just sort of gradually finding my way to what I'm doing now. Amazing. And it's interesting they're talking about the person who does very small glass work. I think some about what what makes large scale so compelling. For me, scale itself is not a value. It's 
you know, if it's an ugly pot and it's big, it's just a bigger, ugly pot. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's, I was like saying to a composer, oh, that piece was really loud. <laughs> it's really not what it's about, but it's definitely part of the impact of it. And for large scale, I think it's, you know, we respond to them as sculpture and it's hard to convey what they do in an image because so much is about the visceral impact of the physical presence of this large wow. object. So that's part of what happens at large scale. But I also think it has something in common with the miniatures you're talking about, because in both cases, I feel like the, the psyche is somehow jolted out of ordinary reality. And it, this moment of the psyche being disarmed, if you will. And True, um, yeah. so people have these spontaneous physical reactions to the pieces. They they hug them, they go over and they sing into mm. them and they <laughs> stroke them. And <laughs> it's like coming up to a big horse. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because I think miniatures do a different but related thing in that the you know the attention and the imagination gets activated in an unusual way and has it's like entering the dollhouse and what happens to your mind and imagination when you enter that miniature world and imagine you're in it so i think in both cases there's a sort of stepping out of ordinary reality that yeah. i find interesting you're absolutely right i didn't ever thought about that but you're absolutely right about that and I, I can imagine that um, are you saying it's about the the also the space in 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 which you see your the the object or um, the the clay pot um, that makes the difference. Um, and uh, do you do this type of exhibitions as well? I um, I have had the opportunity to do a couple of museum shows and uh, to fit out a beautiful arboretum uh with 20 or so of my pots several years ago for a summer long exhibition and it was so fun to be able to work with acres of space and think about you know how does the pot function in relation to the structure of the gardens and the plantings and the trees that are there and how a pot at a long view really draws you like a magnet and how one hidden in a place can surprise you um, so I really love uh, uh, conceiving of the pieces and um, placing them in relation to a space. When you create the, the pot, do you think of that? Um, do you, do you, what, what inspires you to create this specific pot? Sometimes I am working in response to a specific space, which I find very interesting. Uh, sometimes I'm responding to a client's request for something similar to a pot they've seen an image of somewhere. Um, most often, and I think my most successful pots, or at least for me personally, come out of my holding a, if you will, state of consciousness. Um, you know, what what does this this 
impulsive generosity I'm feeling, how does that translate to a form or a volume or a line or, um, and I feel like it, that always intersects with two other influences that are almost unavoidable. One is the kind of Mediterranean pot vernacular that we've all osmotically absorbed our whole lives. And the second is forms I find in nature that are so appealing, you know, a hive, a chrysalis, uh, uh, seed pod. And I feel like those three forces, my sort of sense of consciousness, um, our historical heritage and nature really always wind up in different degrees intermingling in my pieces. Well, you know, I spoke to a, um, a sculptor once and he says that he's very much uh, aware of when, when, because he sculpts faces and then he's very much aware of people's ears or noses and, you know, because he, he's, he, because he works with that, you know, because he works sculpting a face. So is this now what you're doing in nature, that you see these forms in nature? Are you then drawn to specific uh, plants or, or pot, uh, flowers that you think, okay, um, you are more aware that I would say um, to those objects or those shapes? I feel like I'm influenced them, influenced by them, but I'm never trying to emulate or replicate oh, them. Okay. Mm. I'm more interested. I just I love the full I'm I'm imagining right now a paper wasp hive and just the fullness of the shoulder of that and and what is that feeling of energy that resides in it. And I feel like I'm responding to it more on that okay. meta level, if you will, than to the physical particulars of it. That's interesting. But now you said you you fell into working with clay and and you started uh, at the age of 40 so before that as a child were you um interested in creating and and were you uh, doing some sort of art I was not I grew up in a family that was not involved or much attuned to that world um there were the you know the usual piano lessons for children and that sort of thing. But it wasn't something my parents were involved in. Um, so I, my first immersion in anything artistic, well, it started when an uncle sort of black sheep in our family showed up for a vacation and left behind a, a cheap guitar, which I learned a few chords on. When I got to college, I got serious about music and eventually wound up doing a master's degree in classical guitar performance. Wow. So I was, you know, for a decade and a half or so, I was doing a lot of teaching at the college and community school level and uh, performing, mostly chamber performing, which interested me much more than solo performing. It's interesting now that we just talked about placing the pots because I, in a way, my approach to pots, I'm now realizing is similar to the chamber music approach. Because what I love doing is the conversation between the pot and its setting and how it 
sort of laid into everything around it as opposed yeah. to going into a niche in a museum and standing on its own. So it, it's sort of an ensemble approach as opposed to a soloist approach. Um, so I did music for a number of years. And when I first started working with Clay, uh, music was very much my reference. And I was always feeling like, okay, how would that musical gesture that we heard through time translate to space? Or what's the conductor's gesture as he's trying to get a certain um, sound or swell out of the orchestra? And so that was very much my reference for years. Um, interestingly, a, a few of my collectors started referring to my music, my uh, hots as crystallized music. Really? <laughs> that was amazing. And then over time, um, as I got seriously into clay, a good friend of mine asked me one day, and I love the way he phrased this question. He said, making pots and playing music, do they draw from the same well? And I realized, yes, absolutely they do. If I'm in the studio all day, I get to the end of the day and you know the well is dry till tomorrow. So eventually clay has wound up supplanting music entirely in my life. Um, I occasionally have the urge to get back to it, but you know, there's um, having played at a certain level, it's hard to realize you have months of reclaiming <laughs> what you were once able to do. Yeah. Um, and also I'm in the studio seven days a week and that's enough. But uh, wonderful that it it's um, developed like that, you know, that from one art form to the next, really. And I feel at the, you know, at the root, they're they're the same. And many artists I talk to in many different media, I feel like we're all at the root doing the same thing and yeah. expressing it in different ways, whether it's through sound or movement or material. Well, I did a series of interviews during lockdown and and um, with artists in in um, yeah in in lockdown and. Uh, many of them were telling me that they started painting or that they started, um, well, even cooking and baking, which I think is also creative forms of art, you know, and, and that really intrigued me that I think it's, it's, it's a way of expressing yourself, you know, in, 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 in this, in many different art forms, but it's for artists, a way of expressing yourselves. Yes, it's a way of expressing yourself. And I feel that there's an underlying skill set that's common to all those things. Um, over the years, I'm no longer doing it, but for many years, I had a, a side job, part-time job, where I was doing uh, grant writing and long-range planning for arts and culture organizations. And at root, it's the same skill set. You're pulling together all these disparate elements and you're trying to put them in relation to each other in a way that they synergize and reinforce each other and turn them into a coherent whole. And at at root, it's the same process when I sit down with lumps of clay. <laughs> but you said something interesting uh, the other day on one of your posts. Um, and I, I I can't quote you, but but what I what I what it came uh, to was that you said that 
this big creation that you're doing, but the starting and thinking of it in smaller parts. Am I right? Can you remember that? Yes. And the, I think the the post you're referring to is essentially an instructional post for aspiring big potters. Mm -hmm. And what one of the things in my teaching that I feel passionate about is demystifying the process. Um, I think I may be better than many people at figuring out how to teach myself things. And as someone who has, for the most part, figured out on my own how to do this, of course, I read and I visit studios and potters are by and large a communally oriented and generous crowd when it comes to sharing information and encouragement. So um you know i stand on the shoulders of hundreds and thousands of potters who've gone before me of course but um as someone who is essentially self-taught i feel like anybody can teach themselves as long as they know what to pay attention to and they're not intimidated <laughs> so a lot of my teaching is about helping people get past the idea that oh i could never do that and i'm just saying Oh, break it down, break it down. You can always make it a smaller increment and work with that and build on that and build on that. So the the process uh, that I use and teach is more about um, patience and strategy than it is about brute strength and um, some kind of rare or world-class talent to work with large amounts of clay. Well, I thought it was such a wonderful little life lesson as well. A lovely little what? Life lesson oh. that you gave, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, inspirational, you know yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm, well, I'm glad. I, that's, I didn't aspire to that, but I'm glad it happened. <laughs> yeah, I took it on like that. No, but I was... I was actually so, the first time I saw you on Instagram, I saw your work, it really fascinated me because I thought to myself, it's huge. It's really something that I think, okay, this, you you have to also think of the, of the, uh, of firing this pot. You know, it's not just creating it, but there has to be all these other things where the ovens, do you have your own ovens where you fire these pots? Um, I do. I'm in my studio, obviously. Yeah. Um, maybe I can give you a little bit of a studio tour. I yes, will try to please. Do that. I would I love that. I need to know what the camera's doing. So I would love that. over, oh yes, I'm reversed. Over this shoulder yeah. is a pot that is still drying. Yeah. And to give you a sense of scale. Wow. So it's on scale. I am six foot two tall. Uh, so this pot is now uh, almost six feet tall. When it fires, the clay shrinks somewhat, so it'll wind up being five feet tall when it comes out of the kiln. Amazing. And, and so a time frame, a time frame, how long does it take you to, to build up that clay? Uh, hands-on time for building a piece like this. I worked on this for about a week and that's not eight hour days every day, of course, because uh, there's time for the clay to set up in between. 
Um, but yeah, uh, maybe uh, uh, this is as large a pot as I'm apt to do. I mean, it's as large a pot, as tall a pot as my kiln can take. Um, but yeah, a week or maybe a seven day week is typical for building a pot of that scale. Um, I use various way fans and torches and that sort of thing to help move the drying process along. So I'm not just waiting for air drying every step of the way. And to transfer that pot to the kiln, see the black box in the background is the kiln. I can't mm -hmm. show you the inside of it, unfortunately, because I'm firing today. There's oh, okay. work in progress. But in the foreground, you see these straps suspended from an electric hoist, yeah. which is on a gantry crane. So when I'm transferring a pot from the wheel, I'm putting straps around it. I'm lifting it with an electric hoist. The floor of the kiln is on a track. So I can roll it outside the box of the kiln, lower the pot onto the floor on the track, and then roll it back into the kiln. Um, the only practical way to do it. When I was planning this kiln 12 years ago, I remember having a conversation with a friend, a conversation I'm grateful for. Every time I opened the kiln, I was whining about how complicated and expensive it was going to be to build a car kiln with the track. And she looked at me and just said, cheaper than back surgery. <laughs> that, was, I, that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> It's the perfect response. Good answer, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So you had to build it yourself, basically. Designed it myself. I had a metal fabricator do the welding, and uh, the rest of it I did myself. In retrospect, it was extremely rash. Um, I knew so little about kilns and kiln building, but from everything I read, I thought it was a conservative approach. It's a cube. Um, I spent a lot of money on fancy burners with blowers built into them, and it has been a great tool for me. Really? Mm. But now, do, do you have to heat it up before you put the pot in, or does it heat while the pot is in? It heats while the pot is in it. I wait till the pot is what potters call bone dry, so, you know, it's dry clay. That's in a way the most nerve wracking part of the process, transferring it from the wheel because it's very fragile at that point to the kiln. But once it's safely in the kiln, uh, things go pretty easily. I put it, I close up the kiln and typically for two or three days, I'll put on very low heat under 200 degrees Fahrenheit uh, just to make sure it's completely dry. Uh, if any steam forms during the firing, the pot will almost certainly crack. Uh, so make sure it's completely dry. <laughs> and then the firing itself is typically 12 to 14 hours. And I get up to 2300 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Mm. Uh, what potters call cone 10. And this work, uh, I use the clay I do and the firing technique I do so that this work is uh, completely vitrified 
the silica in the clay has melted and reformed as a type of glass. So it's impervious to penetration by water, which is very important because most of my work winds up living in landscapes and gardens and nobody wants to move these things around seasonally so they can be out through the winter. Okay. Mm. When people try to understand the material, I say, think of the difference between your dinnerware, which is completely watertight, and a terracotta pot you'd put a plant in, which will take up water like a sponge. Mm. But now, how? what is the weight of such a pot when it's... After this is fired, this will weigh 250 pounds, something okay, like that. So very Maybe heavy. a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, they are, they're very rugged because of the material I use and a somewhat thick wall. So I can move them by myself with a combination of large hand trucks and they roll up and down ramps without damage. And, um, but a, a pot of this scale, I want to move only once. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But now, have you had uh, instances where the pot would crack? Very rarely. I had a spell when I was using a firing technique that uh, partially weakened the clay. And over the, you know, 15 or so years I've been doing this, I've had to replace, I don't know, three or four pots that have cracked spontaneously okay. over the years um but it's not a question of ice or or and it, it, what do i want to say i the the problem is not with the material the problem is with my lack of knowledge about the firing technique oh, okay. that. Mm. and then what uh, how does that feel when you see a crack is it must be devastating if you work seven days to build the, the pot well, um, making big pots is a long training in non-attachment. Okay. <laughs> so, so you really, you you develop a good degree of stoicism and just say, oh, okay. it's part of the game. Okay. You know, yeah. sometimes when you go to bat, you strike out. And, <laughs> um you know, if I'm losing more than one in 20 in the firing, that gets really discouraging. But mm -hmm. other big potters I talk to, it sounds like for most people, you know, losing five to 10% is sort of par. Oh, okay. And I continue to experiment with materials to bring that percentage down. And I feel like I'm onto a solution right now that seems to be working very well for me. Um, with the addition of fiber, um, cellulose fiber added to the clay, which allows more movement of gas and moisture through the clay in the firing process. And that has been really helpful. Well, with all this uh, talk now, you've just um, also proved that science and art is so linked. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So this is why I'm I'm so um, always wondering why um, art is not taught in schools alongside science and maths because it's so interlinked these subjects. You don't need to persuade me. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, I wonder too, there's so many opportunities yeah. for, for integration of. Absolutely. Of yeah. Discipline around the art and everything that's involved you know there's a lot of chemistry involved in this there are people who spend their whole lives doing nothing but glaze chemistry and when i got into this and decided to do it professionally and drop everything else part of my thinking was i'm still going to be in the in the thick of discovery by the time i'm done with this you know there's just an endless amount to learn and so many directions one can go with clay. Um, and I'm starting to experiment now with some, you know, I love the bigness of these pieces and the way they turn spaces into places, I sometimes say, because all of a sudden that space has a significance that it didn't have before. And what I'm interested in now is developing some large-scale installations which will involve um a series of pieces set up in such a way to create well the, the first one that i'm developing and i'm doing for a sculpture exhibition this summer i'm calling sanctuary um it will have a ring of benches and and pillars in fact over my shoulder here you can see that shoulder in the background a wooden form oh, which I is see. A, yeah. yeah which i'll be using to build a series of columns which will create a an enclosure, if you will, for a very large pot in the center. So grouping pieces like this and creating installations that people can be in and move through is very compelling to me right now. Amazing. But now um, what I also uh, ask artists many times are the business side of things. You know, it's one thing to have this creative ideas and and do all this work, but you have to have uh, these things out and, and sold and, uh, of course, seen and so on. So how are you on the business side of things? Terrible. Okay. <laughs> That's usually the answer. <laughs> I mean, the frustrating thing is I, I know what needs to happen and it's not, um, you know, the prize is this. Yeah. And, you know, that's a necessary means to the end of my being able to continue doing this. I mean, fortunately, I really like people. I like hanging out with people. A lot of the sales I make are the result of my doing a site visit and walking the person's property or garden for an afternoon. And um, I love connecting with people around that and our common interest in the uh, power of these objects. Um, so, so that part makes it easy, but it's so, you know, I walk into my studio and it's so easy to be seduced by the wheel and the material and not get on the phone and not make the emails. And, yeah. uh, but I'm at a point now where um, I feel like I have matured enough as an artist and a person that, you know, I realize, okay, that's just part of the deal. And if I don't do it myself, I will find a way to hire somebody to do it for me. I was talking with a friend about this recently because in the past when I've tried to hire help, I've hired piece, people who I'm comfortable with, which means they're a lot like me and they're 
sort of generalists and um, a little bit excitable and <laughs> apt to follow their enthusiasms. And I'm realizing that from the point of view of the viability of the business, I now need to hire a real pro who knows oh, okay. yeah. and who knows marketing and yeah. uh, turn it over to somebody who really knows what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I can make more of these. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think I think it's all, every artist that I've spoken to says the same thing. If they can only do the art and not think of the business side of things. Yeah. Yeah, we all think that's, you know, and of course, I I feel like I need to have a hand in it, but I want no in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yet, uh, we do need to keep paying attention to it. And, you know, my wife keeps telling me I am half the product. You know, if I'm at the event or I'm at the gallery, um, that's where the, that's the sales tend to happen. Yeah. And, you know, I love connecting with people. And, of course, people who are buying a big piece of art want to connect with the artist. Mm. No, that's true. But just by the way, you said you, you started uh, with clay because of your daughter. Yes. Yeah. Is she still doing it? She is not. Uh, oh, okay. She was taking a children's class at the time. I, my other kids had worked with the same teacher. And I went in to pick her up one day and she was working on the kick wheel. And I was mesmerized as people are watching someone. I still can be mesmerized watching a skillful thrower on the wheel. Um, and I was I was taken in as much by what was happening with the clay as by what I think of as the sort of meditation bubble that forms oh, yeah. around that process. There's the focus and the stillness, um, you know, to walk into a room at a studio where there are four or five potters really immersed in their work on the wheel. It's like, stepping into a meditation dojo <laughs> it's mm. a really wonderful calm vibe <laughs> so that intrigued me as as much as what was going on with the clay and then when i signed up for for a class i loved the wheel as a tool and just the sensuous pleasure of the clay wet clay moving through the hands it's very seductive once in a while it shows, I talk to people who say, oh, you know, I did this as a kid. I'd love to get back to it. And I say, ah, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you like by taking an unexpected turn. <laughs> well, just you talking now makes me want to go and sign up for a class. <laughs> Do. Let me know what happens. I'm going to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I used to do a little and eventually bit. Eventually you can sign up for one of my classes. And yeah. Learn how learn how to do that <laughs> that would be amazing um but no i used to do it in college um i used to do a little bit of but but not with the wheel just by hand you know and yes. i actually love doing that but yeah no i'm very intrigued i'm going to have to find out if there's a if, if there's a place in vienna where i can do some pottery oh there has to be many yeah yeah i'll let you know <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, so lovely to talk to you. I was uh, no, I would just like to know now. You you've already created so much and and do these wonderful things. What what um, is the wish now for you for the future? Well, I'm just on the cusp of working on the installation scale that I was describing to you. So 
Um, I would, I want to get my work in front of more people. It's gratifying sitting in, in a beautiful private garden, but I sometimes say to myself, well, you know what, it gives that person and their friends pleasure, but what can I do for the world at large? So I'm interested in, in getting installations into, you know, public art spaces, um, finding, uh, museum shows that would be appropriate for installation scale work and really creating these places to be um, with the pots. I can absolutely imagine that that could be mesmerizing, you know, really uh, to have an environment like that, that you create and the pots as part of this experience. That's part of the, yes, I can't wait too. I made a maquette for the installation I described for you that involves the pillar behind me and we'll have a very large pot. There's, I posted a video of it on Instagram not too long ago. And part of what's exciting me about is, me is, what's it going to be like to be in that? Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine so, that can be amazing. Yeah. So stay tuned. Yes. Now, I follow you very eagerly on Instagram. I love your work. Definitely, I'm going to, yeah, now I'm going to have a look. But Stephen, um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all this uh, share that you shared and, and um, being in your studio. That's so inspirational as well. And you've got a beautiful story. Well, thank you. I love my life. And yeah. I'm I'm happy to be here. Every morning I walk into the studio and feel grateful for the space I have and this opportunity to do something I love. Where are you based? I'm in the state of Vermont in northeastern yeah. um, U.S., uh, two and a half mile, I mean, sorry, two and a half hours west of Boston oh, and okay. three hours north by northeast of New York City, um, little town of 12,000 called Brattleboro, Vermont, in the southeast corner of Vermont. And um, I've been here since 1980. I got here because there was a very vibrant music scene when I came here. And there's also a very vibrant visual arts scene that just gets stronger every year. So I feel... What a place to visit then. It's a, and it's a beautiful state. It's so lovely. Um, I'm starting to offer some week-long workshops. I've just been doing weekend workshops in the past, but in part because I'm in touch with people from Europe who want to do a workshop but want a longer experience if they're going to make the trip. So I'm thinking about expanding that into a possible two-week experience yeah. as well. So, And I've been in conversation with a studio in Belgium about possibly coming to, to the EU to do some teaching at some point in 2024. That would be amazing. But yeah. I'm definitely, I've never been to America, but you will be one of the places I will come to visit. Definitely. <laughs> I would love to have you in my studio. Okay, <laughs> okay Stephen, Thank have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye.